Start with Psalm 30, verses 2 and 3. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Now Mark 5, 21 to 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up beside, behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched, you? Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the fa child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt. Well, it's wonderful to be with you here this morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, seeing how the miracles of Christ are more than just the miracles themselves, uh, but pointing to who Jesus is and who we are in light of who Jesus is. And as we've been walking through Mark's Gospel, we came last week to see Jesus' mission to bring about individual, cultural, and cosmic healing to the world. So it's, it's no surprise that immediately after this narrative, we come to a two-fold section on healing. And in this, we're examining closer what it meant for Jesus to heal others 
and how Jesus goes about healing people. Now, now in doing this, I, I want to relieve some of you who, when you start hearing about physical healing, warning bells go off in your head about what the pastor is going to say or do next. I, I will not be busting out snakes today. I won't be burning anything in front of you today, all right? Nor will people be magically falling down in the slaying of the Spirit. That, that's, not, that, that's not our church, all right? Um, if that's what you think biblical healing is about, then I'm here to relieve you of that. Um, Jesus enacts healing and physical healing, not just to simply heal people of the ailment, but to demonstrate and show what Christ and his kingdom are all about and the authority that Jesus has. So it is not a gift, we believe, that is passed down to pastors, preachers, or some random guy on television to simply perform today. Rather, this passage is highlighting several questions about who Jesus is, and in particular, his ability to heal. So we'll be answering three questions. Um, we had a new membership class last Sunday, and one person who will go unnamed, uh, they were like, what, you know, what do you want in a church? And this person says, I want three-point sermons. And so that was the distinctive for the church. So that person, you're in luck today. There are three questions that the text will be answering today. One, how can Jesus heal? Uh, two, how does Jesus heal? And three, how will you respond? So how can Jesus heal? How does Jesus heal? And how will you respond? Um, but before we begin, can we pray together? Father, uh, guide the preaching of your word uh, to preach conviction, to preach with clarity, to preach with compassion, and to preach Christ. Let us believe yet again that Jesus heals the most broken, desperate people of which whom we consider ourselves the foremost. Lord, be with, uh, may your spirit preach now. In your name, amen. So let's dive into the first question that scripture is trying to answer. Um, or should I say, scripture is building the tension in these two stories, and that is, how can Jesus heal? Uh, there are several factors to consider when we're thinking about Jesus' return back across the Sea of Galilee and returning to Capernaum, returning to home turf. He's, he's back from Gentile lands into Jewish territory, and, and he's in the synagogues, and we find this man named Jairus that is running to him. Now, obviously word has spread around in this time that Jesus can, in fact, heal others, but the skepticism surrounding Jesus is beginning to build particularly among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is, is that Jesus isn't the kind of healer that you really want to be around. His disciples, after all, they're, they're breaking the Sabbath. Jesus himself, the rabbi, he's, he's healing unlawfully on the Sabbath day, according to the Pharisaical tradition. So Jesus is becoming very controversial amongst the religious elite, and while he might be popular with the crowds, those who hold to an orthodox, theologically conservative Jewish position are truly disgusted by how this Jesus is gaining popularity. Surely, these healings must be some kind of witchcraft, some kind of trick. Surely, this Jesus isn't who he says that he is. Surely, anyone that would follow this Jesus is being unfaithful. So this is the kind of risk that Jairus takes when he approaches Jesus, falling and begging for him to heal his daughter who is desperately sick. As a ruler in the synagogue, he held a position of extremely high status that meant a lifetime of respected work in the community of faith. 
He was in charge of the security of the synagogue, arranging Sabbath worship, arranging the prayers, who would be preaching that day, watching over the orthodox teachings of the temple. His high role meant that all eyes were on him. He was always examined, looked at, to see whether or not he met the bar that the Jewish tradition set upon his life. So what does this mean for a man of his position? Well, Jesus is too divisive to talk about, let alone fall down and worship and ask for his help. And sure, yeah, Jesus might be able to heal, but what about all the other forms of healing that could be available for his daughter? Why not try to exhaust all those options before coming to Jesus? Does, does Jesus even need to heal his daughter? Can Jesus even heal at all? Wouldn't it be a bother for him, right? Why take the risk? Do you see the weight of what seems like very real questions challenging the notion of why Jairus would come to Jesus in the first place? Why take that risk? Why risk everything, your reputation, for the sake that Jesus could heal? Not that he must heal, not that he will definitely heal, but that Jesus could heal his daughter. This is the question facing Jairus, and really it's a question for all believers from Mark's age in Rome until today. Do we look to Christ to be the one to, as Jairus, believe, Jairus believes in verse 23 of our text, Jairus believes that Jesus can make us well, can make his daughter well and live. Um, here's the thing I learned, uh, I think I've learned, being the husband of a physician's assistant graduate who uh, just graduated, um, so take everything I say with a grain of salt right now. Uh, there is no such thing as a magic pill or a cure-all potion, isn't it? Uh, this life isn't like the Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, where if you just hold a heart above your head, all of your ailments will be, will be taken care of, right? Um, often, my wife was telling me, uh, in the case of, for example, arthritis, you're just trying to prevent the inevitability of decline rather than saying, oh, this procedure, this thing will promote full and complete healing. Um, and another example of this, have you all seen those, uh, those pharmaceutical drug commercials with all those smiling people, you know, in the background, they're sort of living pain-free while the announcer is like hurriedly rushing through all the list of symptoms that can happen to you as you take the drug, right? That Osempic commercial, right? This wonder pill to, to use to lower blood sugar for those with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and then you hear the list of side effects. I actually looked up the side effects for Osempic, and I'm just going to read them to you right now. Here's what this wonder pill could do to you. The side effects include vision changes, unusual mood changes, pounding heartbeats or fluttering in your chest, a lighthearted feeling like you might pass out, signs of a thyroid tumor, swelling or a lump in your neck, trouble swallowing, a hoarse voice, feeling short of breath, symptoms of pancreatitis, severe pain in your upper stomach spreading to your back, nausea with or without vomiting, fast heart rate, gallbladder, gallbladder problems, upper stomach pain, fever, clay-colored stools, jaundice, low blood sugar, headache, hunger, weakness, sweating, confusion, irritability, dizziness, fast heart rate or feeling jittery, kidney problems, stomach flu symptoms, stomach cramps, vomiting, loss of appetite. Jeez, <laughs> right? And look, Osempic might be the drug that does indeed work, right, without any of these side effects, but they have to disclose these and we know that, but you get my point. If you can't believe that Jesus can heal, then you have to place your faith in something else. And while modern medicine is a tremendous gift from the Lord, and, and we should use it, when life hits you with something that is just beyond 
the cuts and scrapes of life, and you face that something that challenges the very notion of your health itself, and you've got no answers, who do you turn to? What then becomes your hope of salvation? And I say this because the secret to health is a pill that every generation has tried to find. A tale as old as time from the quest of the Holy Grail and just as fruitless. You can make yourself to, in the pursuit of financial health to find the emptiness of wealth and the burden that wealth creates. You can make yourself physically wealthy by find yourself completely consumed by what you eat, your physical activity, denying yourself social relationships. And if you talk to most bodybuilders, finding yourself still struggling about whether they are enough physically. You can make yourself relationally healthy, only to find yourself fearing isolation and abandonment, just like every other viral star on social media. You can try all of these things and yet feel as though health and healing are just beyond the next horizon, thinking that the last horizon you cleared would have solved the issue. Secularism, as one of my friends says, becomes the acid that cannot be held in any container that you try to place it in. And it leaves and continues a path of broken promises and desperation wherever you go. This is, in essence, the sick women's plight. She is so desperate that she is willing to try anything, including the notion that touching someone's garment of a powerful person could heal her of her condition. She tried every means to heal herself, even as going as so far to bankrupt her future so that she could be healed in the present. She would give anything for her condition to be made well again. It literally has become all-consuming in her life her priorities, she desperately needs to see Jesus as the one who can heal. So in spite of Jesus' busy schedule and the crowds around her that would see her as unclean and see her acting unlawfully, being present with this blood discharge condition in the presence of a rabbi, she risks everything that she has to go to Jesus. She is desperate for the Jesus who can heal. For Jairus and this woman, maybe for us today, we need to realize that we can only come to Jesus when we realize there's nothing else that can heal us. There's no one else we can turn to to fix that which we have discovered to be incurable. And it, it's not that physical, financial, social, and emotional health aren't important to take care of. Far from it, God uses natural means to heal and mend us, but when those actions become our source of identity and hope, we will find ourselves completely rattled when any one of those things becomes rocked. The stock market crashes. Our relationships with others become broken beyond repair. Maybe we suffer an injury that no doctor can fix. Maybe we face relational sadness and brokenness over and over again. We need to go to the only fountain of healing we can find and turn to Christ. We go to Jesus in desperation because we believe that it's truly only through his power and his grace that he can heal us. How can Jesus heal? Only if Jesus is exactly who he says that he is. And only if we are desperate enough find him. Now, note that I am caveating here something truly important. It's the notion that Jesus can heal, not that he must heal for us to believe. 
Not that he can't heal because we do not believe. Not that he won't heal because maybe we deny his power or we fear his goodness. That Jesus can heal because he is able and because he is good. But going to the extremes of Jesus being demanded to heal or the belief that Jesus can't heal, it renders God into a genie in a bottle that serves humanity rather than the God who is Lord over all. And if the God we worship who knows more about our sufferings and trials than we do, the God who bore our sufferings on the cross did not shy away from taking the curse of sin so that we might have life, then we must be ready to accept the possibility that Jesus might not heal us in the moment, but instead he might give us something far greater. As one pastor said, either Jesus can heal me or Jesus will heal me. He will and he's promised to give us renewed and restored bodies afterwards. He will use our trials and our situation, yes, even our suffering, for the greater advancement of the glory of his name. And he will give us the joy of being that much closer to being with God himself in heaven. See, at the core of our desperation of healing comes with it a wanting of control over what will make us healthy. We want to say that we had the power to make ourselves well. But if we truly are honest, healing can only come when we repent to the Lord of letting go of the control we try and have over our own state, repenting of living our life in such a way that though we claim to believe in the power of God, we sought after the powers of this world to heal and found it lacking. The fourth century North African theologian, Augustine, whose writings would later inspire the Reformation in his most celebrated work, uh, a book called The Confessions, speaks to the heart of this Jesus who is as healer and our hope, the one above the desperations we feel when we're in agony or when we're in pain. You see, Augustine spent a lifetime running away from God. He was a thief, a teacher, a respected orator, a girl-crazy scholar, a cult member, and in each and every single one of these aspects of his life, he was trying to find a healing balm for his soul that could soothe him. It was only through the humility he found in Christ who bore our sufferings for us that he realized the true meaning of Christ's healing hand in his life. He writes this. Rightly then, it is my hope strongly fixed on him that thou will heal all my diseases by him who sitteth at thy right hand and maketh intercession for us. Else should I utterly despair. For numerous and great are my infirmities, yet numerous and great are they, but thy medicine is greater. Church, I pray that we would know the answer to the first question today. That we become desperate to find ourselves looking to Jesus. How can Jesus heal? He can because of who he is. And we must consider our desperation to find him. So let's move on to our second question. How does Jesus heal? But what power is acting here that would help us to realize how Jesus is doing this? Now, in both healings, in Jairus and the woman, we find the belief of Jairus and the woman that it is the touch of Jesus that would be the act of healing. Now, this would not be out of accord with some Old Testament practices of the laying on of hands. And even in the Jewish tradition of the idea that the touch of somebody could heal you, but while Jesus many times performs healings the miraculously through the laying of his hands, this isn't the means by which healing occurs. 
And we should be careful to view it as such. The principle and the idea that the action itself of the hands being placed on the person or the robe, on the woman grabbing the robe of Christ, is, is rooted in more pagan and mystical ideas than the healing power that comes from Christ. Now, I don't have to tell you how easy it is to find examples in our world today of fake healers going around pretending to heal people through performative acts. Like, look like bad magic trip, tricks from like, you know, a fake hypnotist. And it certainly was the craze of Jesus' time as well. The idea that the act of hands in and of itself promotes the healing is not what Jesus is trying to convey. And in both of these cases, for Jairus and the woman, we are reminded that the vehicle of Jesus' healing, all right, is not just the physical touch, but in every part of our being is faith in Christ's saving power. Now notice, by the way, this is not a perfect faith. Jairus' fear in this passage when he hears the news of his daughter's death, as well as what he believed to be the means of healing on the laying of hands, it doesn't disqualify Jesus from healing his daughter. God works through the imperfect faith that Jairus had. God works through the imperfect faith in the woman who believed that the touching of his robe would be the means of healing. And Jesus reminds her that the power that had gone from Jesus and that had transformed this woman's sickness had made her well was not the touching of a robe, but what? If you read this passage carefully, her faith. The text reminds us twice in this passage, go, your faith has made you well, he said to this woman. Go in peace, which is a blessing benediction that demonstrates that it's more than the blood discharge that she's been healed of, but she has brought a greater blessing to her soul. Likewise, Jesus sensing Jairus' fear when he's approaching the fact that his daughter has proclaimed to be dead, what does Jesus tell Jairus in verse 36? Do not fear only Jairus is reminded again of why he came to Jesus in the first place. He needs to be renewed afresh of his belief in what Christ is about to do. It is in this that Jesus is telling Jairus that this fear, will uh, this faith will overcome his fear. Now this is a good spot to remind us of the vicious lie that Satan will tell Christians. That God is withholding his grace to you because the strength of our faith is somehow not strong enough. Satan will lie to us and say, you know, only if you had stronger faith, you know, only if you read your Bible more, only if you prayed more fervently, then your dreams would be realized. Then that thing that you feel broken about would be healed and secure. And do you see how subtle that lie is that Satan is presenting? He's taking these good things, which, which do, in fact, grow and build our faith, these spiritual disciplines that we should be doing, and, and he goes one step further. Satan makes those actions the measure in which Christians receive the grace of God. He's making these things the foundations on which how God is going to act in the world, making, a God, making God a servant to your will, to your perseverance, to your art, to your steadfastness, rather than God being free in his grace to grant grace to whomever he wishes. And yet, if we look through scripture, if we pull back the microscope on our own lives, you'll see time and time again, God working his grace to people that had no business of receiving God's grace. God working faith through a complaining and rebellious Israel 
God working healing to his children whom he knew would fall into sin again and again and again and again. God continually granting us, granting me grace that I could never imagine despite how foolish and immature I am. Healing me of my addictions, my sickness, my weaknesses that I never thought that I could be rid of. You see, God takes our imperfect faith, our stumbling walks, our blemished hearts, and he transforms them to tangible grace that we can all experience each and every single day. How does Jesus heal? Not because of the strength of our faithfulness in Christ, but because we have faith in a Christ who is faithful. Our faith in the Christ who is powerful to heal. Our faith in the Christ who works through our weaknesses. Our faith that believes but needs help in our unbelief. How does Jesus heal? He heals because the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. How does Jesus heal? Because Jesus is the God who we find all our true hopes and realizes it for a world desperately in need of healing. So this all leads us to the question a question that we've been answering throughout these miracles, and our final question here today, is how will you respond? You know, there's an interesting character in this story that we haven't talked about yet in this passage, and that is the mourners. Now, the mourners in the story, some, some, something you may not know, in the time of, of Jesus where death was, was very frequent, that it basically become a natural part of life and the economy, ceremonially there was a procedure that needed to be followed in this era. You would hire professional mourners who would be on deck to come perform the necessary functions of the funeral and preparation. Uh, no matter how rich or poor you were in Jesus' era, at the time of death, you needed a minimum, according to law, two flute players. All right, City of Hope, are, are we in trouble? Um, I know we, Janet plays the flute. Do we have any other flute players here? All right? No? Okay, we're in trouble. Okay, so we would have not been up to code in, G in, in the Jewish era. Uh, you needed also, in addition to those two flute players, one professional mourner to be present. Now, a man of Jairus' status as a, as a synagogue ruler leader would probably have a host of professional mourners awaiting and ready to go. And they're already there when Jesus arrives doing their job when suddenly they're confronted with Jesus saying something to them that would have been impossible for them to realize. The idea that Jesus brings, this girl is not dead. In fact, sleeping and will come alive. You do not need to weep and wail. Now you have to picture the sheer irony in this scene that is being presented right now. These professional mourners whose whole position in Latin life is to appear reverent, to appear pious, to appear dignified and compassionate, to mourn so well that they are, in the text says, weeping and wailing loudly, are now laughing their heads off that Jesus could bring the dead to life. The juxtaposition in this scene is this emotional whiplash designed to tell you and show you that, that people who appear reverent, worshipful, dignified in ceremony, often when they come face to face with Jesus' power, they laugh in the face of it and deny Christ in that very moment when they should have realized 
who Jesus was. Friends, this is a danger for the church in every generation in their response to Jesus and who he is. This is a picture for us today. Jesus tells us that he heals. He's demonstrated it all throughout history. The miraculous power he holds to change every heart. That all things will become subject to him. And instead all we do is look at our current circumstances, act like professional Christians and laugh in Jesus' face when he tells us in his word that he will do what he will do. The question that Mark is raising is will you realize that Jesus is who he says that he is? And will you believe that Jesus will do what he says he will do. 1784, uh, a man by the name of Richard Allen became one of the first licensed African-American preachers in St. George Methodist Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Sometime after his licensure one Sunday, African-Americans at the church were told that they had no right to sit with their fellow believers in the pews, that they must sit around the wall and later in a segregated balcony. One Sunday, when the services had begun, Richard accidentally hurried to the pews to sit down, just as one of the elders said, let us pray. And Richard and his friends got down on their knees to pray, just as they've done countless times before. Richard was praying until he heard the sounds of his friend and, and, and his fellow preacher, Absalom Jones, being told that they must get off of their knees and that they could not kneel there. The church official said, no, in the middle of the service, you must get up now or I will call for aid and force you away. Sometime after that humiliation, officials then wanted to banish all blacks from sitting in the first floor at all. And that's when Richard Allen and his friends did something incredibly bold. They realized that the current church culture would not respond to Jesus' call to see that there was no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, that they couldn't see them as one in Jesus Christ. They realized that the idea of it would have been laughable in a country where one of its prominent leaders, Thomas Jefferson, stated that blacks could never be equal because they could not produce good art. So instead, Richard Allen and his friends decided to start their own church. They believed that Jesus could heal the dignity of their fellow African-American brothers and sisters in a place and time where they could pray to the Lord without their personhood being destroyed every time they came to church on a Sunday morning. So Richard Allen bought an old blacksmith shop. He hauled it to a piece of land that he was able to purchase and handcrafted a pulpit, arranged the pews, and painted the walls and the brick of his new church. And in 1794... This church was dedicated and named Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church. The very foundations of the AME church that still exist today. In a time and place when the very thought of the idea would have been laughed at and jeered from professional Christians who could not see Jesus working and instead did everything in their power, in fact, to raise this church building that Richard Allen had built. Richard Allen believed in the power of Christ to heal a divide that seemed undividable. Today, the AME church still thrives today. And while we might lament the fact that Sunday worship still remains one of the most segregated hours in the country today, and we lament the conditions that made the notion of the AME church even necessary, we are reminded of how the church can press forward in a new way of healing and restoration that models Christ as the great healer.
You see, if the response of today's text from us is to have faith that Jesus will do the miracle in your life if you just passively sit, you will have missed the point of the story that the Gospel of Mark is trying to give. You see, miracles had a function back in biblical times to demonstrate the authority of Jesus and his apostles. They were pointing to the kingdom that Jesus was establishing, showing that through him, his disciples, these these healings were a sign of what the kingdom of God was going to look like. Now, since the apostles have established the church, and Scripture says that the, the testimony of Scripture is all that we need, we no longer believe that the authority to perform healing miracles through a minister is possible today. But God can do whatever he wants, and we pray and ask for God to heal, and God to restore, and God to make us well. Don't, don't hear me not saying that God can't heal today. He can. But the notion that we need to go searching for a self-proclaimed apostle, a charismatic leader, or even expecting that from your new senior pastor to go and be the miracle is not only a wrongful expectation, but a clear laughing in the face of what Christ is calling the church to be in the here and now. Christ, instead of rather having us looking for signs and totems, has commanded the church to be a hospital for sinners. That while the physical nature of disease being cast out and dead coming back to life isn't something that we hold the keys to today, Christ has given the church the keys to his kingdom to point people to the one who can heal, to be the hands and feet of Christ. We have been given as his image bearers the role of considering how we can tell others about him. We can point people to the great physician and stand back and then see how God works miraculous things that we long to see. Lives being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit from spiritual death to spiritual life. Families who once rejected God, worshiping and praising God together. Marriages being restored that almost seem impossible to heal. Joy, when the feeling of joy has felt so inescapable and almost impossible to feel in the heart and mind especially in our smartphone generation. When we gather here today as a community in Christ, as we carry all of these wounds and scars in our hearts and souls, the healing happens when we worship and praise and praise and sing to a God and Him who is faithful. Why? Because we are not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God for those who believe. Christ heals. Christ saves. You and I are living testimonies to the miracle of God's grace. Christ gives us what we cannot even imagine or fathom because this is how we respond to him. And as we see in this passage, as the mourners move from laughing to amazement, so we too as the church can make the world wonder about this Jesus who can heal. Christian, do you have a faith that is, even though as frail and small as a mustard seed, incomplete, do you trust in the healing power of Jesus? How will you respond? My prayer for this church is that we see Jesus as the one who heals. No matter what you're facing or what you're struggling with today, we have faith in the faithful one. Let's pray together.